This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And we have a guest with us uh, for this episode. We are welcoming digital marketer and four-day Jeopardy! champion, Marianne Borer. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Emily. I'm glad to be here. So glad to have you with us. Loved watching your shows. Thank um, you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, Marianne is with us. She's bringing our deep dive and quiz uh, and uh, joining us to recap the week, uh, which started off with Monday, October 12th. Uh, we had the contestants Barbara Geiser, a neurologist originally from the Bronx, New York. Michael Zanettis, a medical writer originally from Astoria, New York, and Kevin Walsh, a story analyst originally from Williamstown, New Jersey, whose two-day cash winnings total $42,900. And we had the Jeopardy round categories, their bar or bot mitzvah, France, behind the voices, eight-letter words, furniture, and colorful lit. I appreciated in their bar or bot mitzvah, there was a miss... And then I appreciated Alex's correction. Um, the clue at the $1,000 level was this future Facebook executive had a symbolic bot mitzvah twin, a girl in the Soviet Union where Jews were oppressed. Barbara guessed who is Mark Zuckerberg. That was incorrect. Michael rang in with who is uh, Cheryl Sandberg. And Alex clarified, oh, well, it's bot mitzvah. Um, bot mitzvah means daughter of the covenant. Covenant. Yes. Right. Thank you, Marianne. And Bar Mitzvah's son of the Covenant. I sort of appreciated Alex suggesting that, you know, that we should know those terms, because I, I think it's it's important to kind of learn the terminologies, the important, uh, important concepts of the different religions. And I appreciated that being a clue in there. Yeah. 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 Did you get, are you going to talk about yes. Devil in the White City yes, again? Yes, I am. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. I was so excited. That was an answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was so a great I, book. It was. I just read it um, at the $600 level of Colorful Lit uh, by Eric Larson about murder, magic, and madness at the fair, the devil in the blank city. That is the white city uh, about the 1893, I think it was, Chicago World's Fair. And I just yeah. read that book. I talked about it a little bit. It sounds like you've read it too, Marianne. Oh, it was so good. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, really super fascinating and creepy. The, the it, serial yeah. killer stuff. Ugh. Immediately followed up by Harold and the Purple Crayon. So. Yeah, that <laughs> so. was a... Yeah, yeah the, the writers have been getting a little wild lately with like the juxtaposition of clues and categories. Yeah. Yes, indeed. You know, I mean, you got to think they're they're also quarantined and stuck inside, yeah. and right? I mean, we're, they definitely a little stir crazy. We're all going through it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we get the first daily double at pick number seven. It's the four hundred dollar clue in the France category. Uh, Michael finds it, and he is at negative two hundred, and he wagers eight hundred fifty four, which is apparently his lucky number. I don't know. We can talk about that later. <laughs> um, Kevin is at 800 and Barbara is at negative 800. So uh, a tough, tough board so far for them. Uh, he gets the clue. Officially celebrated since 1880. Festivities for it include a parade from the Arc de Triomphe to the Place de la Concorde. And 
Michael does not know. He says, what's the French Revolution? But specifically, they're looking for Bastille Day. Mm-hmm. So he drops to a very strange number. <laughs> a number we don't normally see on Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, uh, the thing about making those weird wagers, is you end up with a very confusing score. Yeah, like, I, I always, like... Like the the round numbers, or like the even numbers, so that way you mm-hmm. can like figure out what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You know, I got a lot of flack on my games for my uh, lack of betting savvy, but you know, <laughs> when you're up there, it's hard to think about stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And, and I mean, I've said this plenty of times before. I didn't really prepare beforehand for my first run in that sense. So I learned a lot of this stuff afterward, after having gotten lucky enough to win. Yeah, if I if I studied uh, betting a little more carefully, I might have actually made it to the second <laughs> the second round there. Mm-hmm. I might have got, I might have yeah. got to come back. I like I have to say that I was a little surprised to hear the uh, like I'm not like French is not like my thing. So like to hear someone say the Bourbon <laughs> dynasty, mm-hmm. I was like, what is oh the Bourbons? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like excuse me, I'm from Texas, and that there is the Bourbon dynasty. Here. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, for sure. I cannot get that fancy, even for a national audience. <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Kevin is in a solid lead at 7,000. Barbara has 200 and Michael has 946. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, festivals of light, ancient history, anagrams of each other, cats entertainment, I'll turn it, and universe. And it took me a while to realize that this was the, the joke here is alternate universe, mm-hmm. but I, I figured oh, okay. it out eventually. They've been they've been getting really punchy with the puns. <laughs> I was today yeah. years old and I realized that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I had I just had a hard time with this board. I don't know. I like anytime it. they have the anagrams, yeah, that absolutely takes me out. I'm like, thank goodness they didn't have any of those in my games. Yeah. Those are oh. a killer, man. I'm trying. I'm, I like. I want to be able to like take the words and like mix them up and figure out what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I normally do okay with them. I had a hard time with a few of these, but that's where we found daily double number two as the eighth pick at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Kevin found this one and wagered twenty eight hundred of his ninety eight hundred. Uh, Michael had seventeen forty six at that point, and Barbara fourteen hundred, and he got the clue. To hit the books and the condition of old books left unread for years, and he correctly responded, what are study and dusty? I feel like they don't usually put daily doubles in the wordplay categories. No, I think it would be unusual to me, too. Yeah. Um, I guess they've been trying to mix it up ever since that uh, article came out about where all the daily doubles are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're... they're pretty pretty guessable, or at least they used to be. I remember um, when I was prepping for Jeopardy, I would um, I would play along with my little grid, and I would circle the four spots I thought the daily doubles were most likely to be. Mm. And usually, I was right about at least one of the two in Double Jeopardy out of my oh. four guesses. Nice. Yeah, they like they like to put them in the like the history and geography and maybe literature kinds of categories like the kind of harder academic stuff and like and in those those three middle rows Mm -hmm. um but yeah they've been changing it up more recently yeah 
I wanted to shout out to uh, any fellow fans of uh, Kirby who got the Dark Matter answer because of that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also all my fellow Star Trek fans who remember the Dyson Sphere from Star Trek. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's like what targeted ads I'm getting on Facebook or what, but like it said Dyson and six letters. And I was like, I know this, that's a vacuum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, not, that fan blower thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I missed that one. Um, but I knew dark matter. Hmm. That was just an cool. answer on the Kirby one day recently. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> For Learn League. <laughs> Daily Double number three is in the universe category. Uh, right above that Dark Matter clue, actually, at the $1,200 level. Michael finds this one as well. He is at sixty-five forty-six, way behind Kevin's 15400 uh, and Barbara is back at 3400 He wagers 5000 which is a good move at that point. To me, you might as well have just bet it all, because, I don't know, 5000 is, in my mind, equivalent to all if of it. If you drop to 1546 um, at this point, it's pretty unlikely you're going to get back in contention. So Right, yeah. right. Might as well just do it all. But it's still a big enough wager to make it a game. And he gets the clue, to find this Zodiac constellation, look for Spica, its brightest star. It marks the sheaf of wheat the maiden holds. Uh, and he doesn't see the clue. He guesses what is Aquarius, and uh, Alex says, no, what is Virgo? And uh, he then gets the clue of the maiden. Yeah. But that means he drops down, which is essentially the end of the game there. Yeah. Oh, much. yeah, for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kevin just keeps climbing. Um, at the end of Double Jeopardy, Kevin's at 22,600. That's a lock game. Um, Michael is at 4746. Barbara's at 3,000. Um, and we get the final Jeopardy category, World License Plates. And the clue is, around 2010, the state license plate for Michoacan, Mexico, featured these insects. My pronunciation was not as good as Marianne's. Um <laughs> Barbara wagers 1500 and guesses what are grasshoppers. Michael wagers 1711, uh, referencing his children's birthdays. Um, he guesses what are the cricket and the ant. I feel like it's not uh, documented in J Archive, but I think he got a little flack from Alex for that. <laughs> like, interesting guesses both wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> something to that effect. I want to say that uh, Barbara's guess of grasshoppers was a solid guess. That was actually, guess. that was my yeah. guess at home because mm -hmm. she must know, like, as I do, that chapulines or fried grasshoppers are a common snack in Mexico. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so I was I like, that's got to be it. But uh, alas, it was not it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Kevin Wager's 2,600 and guesses uh, what are cockroaches? I think thinking of the song. My guess. Um, sure. Is that it? I hope that's what I hope that's what he was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, the correct answer here is uh, monarch butterflies. It didn't matter too much because Kevin had a lot game. He finishes with uh, twenty thousand for this game and comes back the next day. As soon as I heard the monarch butterflies, I was like, "Oh my god! Why didn't I think of that?" Because that's right. like where they that's where they winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So on Tuesday, we get the contestants Nat Supab, a cancer research coordinator from Pico Rivera, California, 
Alex Switsky, a writer and producer from North Hollywood, California, and Kevin Walsh, a story analyst originally from Williamstown, New Jersey, who is now up to $62,900. We get the Jeopardy round categories, Tree of a Kind, Languages, The Not-So-Roaring Thirties, Women in Literature, Anti-Pope, each correct response will be a word that comes just before Pope in the dictionary, and NASCAR in Vegas. Featuring Jimmy Johnson and others. <laughs> uh, Is there sports context I should know here? N- n- no, not necessarily. Um, okay. I think it's a, a indicative of how well the Jeopardy writers write clues that the contestants were able to get three out of the five Clues? Correct. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I imagine NASCAR knowledge is not one of the more common studied sports for mm-hmm. Jeopardy contestants. Yeah. Um, they got the $200 clue uh, where they were supposed to identify William Byron's number 24 car, which is a Camaro, and you could see the car. So... If you know who makes a Camaro or what the logo looks like, then you know it's Chevy. Mm-hmm. I guess you'd have to squint across the stage to make out the logo. <laughs> oh, at the $600 level, uh, they were asking for an Alabama super speedway, but referenced the Will Ferrell movie. So they knew it was Talladega. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Alex got that one. Oh, Alex got the 200 and the 600. And at the 800, they were asking for a speedway named for this state capital, and they referenced the first state. Uh, so Kevin put together that they were asking for Dover. But yeah, my guess is that they didn't know this, the speedways. They knew the, uh, the Will, Will Ferrell movie and the capital of Delaware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like I knew the Daytona one, but I had to guess from from uh, the Will Ferrell, the mm-hmm. Talladega. Yeah. Yeah. And I, Richard Petty, I, you know. You grew up in the South. You have to learn a little something about NASCAR. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) I was thrilled they got to all the clues in the women in literature category. Oh, yeah. Although I had a little bit of a beef with the $1,000 clue, honestly. Because, Mm -hmm. like, I thought it it had been pronounced like Rosaline. I thought it was Rosalind. Yeah. And when I heard Rosaline, I thought Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. And Rosalind Hmm. is a different person from As You Like It. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, he did pronounce it Rosaline. Yeah, so I had a little, I, I, like, had a little bit of a beef on that one. If they had thrown Romeo and Juliet, I would have said mm-hmm. like that would have been a, a was something to challenge on, but yeah. it ended up being a triple stumper, so it was kind of a mm-hmm. moot point. Yeah. Yeah. And I and uh, oh yeah, and like a shout out to like everybody who remembered Smoot Holly from Ferris mm-hmm. Bueller's Day Off, like I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no shame, yeah. only points. Yep. That's right. That's right. Does not does not matter how you know it. Yep. Daily Double number one came up in the tree of a kind category. They gave you three varieties and you had to name what type of tree those were. Um, the contestants had struggled with these. They didn't get the 200. It was a triple stumper. Japanese, silver, and sugar. Those are maples. They did get uh, the 400 windmill, sago, and date are palms. Nat got that one. They didn't get the 600 Norway, Serbian, and Sitka are spruce trees. Alex seemed really disappointed with them about that. Yeah. Um, 
they did get the 800 mission, Manzanillo and Kalamata are olive trees. Um, and then uh, Alex uncovered the daily double at the $1,000 level. Um, so the 25th pick. He had 3,800 at that point and wagered just 100. Kevin had 5,200 at that point. Nat was in the red, $400. Alex said, don't feel confident dealing with trees. Uh, Alex Switsky replied, not so much. But then he got the clue rainbow, yellow gum, Tasmanian blue gum. And he correctly responded, what is eucalyptus? Mm-hmm. But, you know, probably wise to go with a low wager when the category has clearly been not working well for the contestants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Jeopardy writers yeah. just keep on loving Borat. Yeah. And now that the sequel's coming out, right, they're probably like, uh, oh, yeah. Gin up that interest for the sequel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Apparently, at the $400 level of languages, we found out that um, Sasha Baron Coat. Cohen was actually speaking Hebrew, not Kazakh, in this 2006 comedy, which uh, was Borat. Kevin got that one. That's like my favorite sighting of the Hebrew language since Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that might have been Yiddish. Never mind. <laughs> I'm old. I forget things. I haven't seen Blazing Saddles. I know that's embarrassing. Um, that's okay. I only saw it a couple years ago. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Don't uh, worry about it. <laughs> Anyway, uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Kevin has 6,000. Alex is in second place at 4,300. Nat is in the red, 400. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, medical history, oxymorons, awards and honors, TV theme song lyrics, the cubists, and a bunch of squares. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Oh, goodness. I think I've talked about how much I love Mr. Rogers before. Yes, I uh, mm-hmm. love Mr. Rogers. Yeah, he uh, he came up at the TV theme song lyrics $400 level. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? He was brilliant. And an ordained minister, if I haven't talked about that on the podcast. Yeah, Presbyterian. Mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, the second Daily Double shows up in the oxymorons category at the $1,200 level. Uh, Kevin finds it. And he's in the lead at 8,800. Alex has 5,100. And Nat is at negative 400. Kevin wagers 2,800 on this. He gets the clue. This oxymoron refers to dark chocolate, often in about the 60% cocoa range. And that is bittersweet. And he gets it correct. Mm-hmm. And daily double number two is the only clue that is revealed in the cubists at the $1,200 level. The 26th pick, uh, which turns out to be the final clue of the round. Alex finds this one and makes it a true daily double with 5,900. Kevin's at 14,400 at this point. Nat is still at negative 400. And uh, the clue is Tender Buttons, written by this American expatriate while she was living in Paris, is a book of Cubist still life prose poems. And he freezes up a little bit. He guesses who is St. Marie. The correct response here is Gertrude Stein. Mm -hmm. And that being the last clue of the round is followed by the end of round signal, which means, as we just talked about, Nat was at negative 400. Alex just bet everything and dropped down to zero. So Kevin has a lock game at 14,400 because he's the only one who will be playing in Final Jeopardy. 
Mm-hmm. Which we have not seen in a while. Mm-hmm. He gets the Final Jeopardy category, Literary Pronouns, and the clue is, Thanks to a horror film, this novel returned to the bestseller lists in 2017, some 30 years after reaching number one. And Kevin gets it right with What Is It? And he'd wagered 4400 because uh, he he seems to like if you know if he's going to get it wrong, he likes to land on one of those big round numbers. Yeah. So that takes us into Wednesday, October fourteenth. We have the contestants Jack Mooney, an aerospace engineer from Santa Cruz, California; Elaine Zatarain, a patient care coordinator from San Diego, California; and Kevin Walsh, a story analyst originally from Williamstown, New Jersey, whose four-day cash winnings total eighty-one thousand. $700. And we get the Jeopardy round categories. Okay, boomerang. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fact. Which hopefully these are get- all facts. Yes. Uh, that's another one of those uh, categories. Like, like I feel like, I don't think they've actually ever called one trivia, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but like they're, they're like facts category, yeah. like facts. It's like, yes. Yeah. We assume so. Yeah. <laughs> like, I hope they're all facts. Like, I mean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have holidays and observances, two word TV titles, which country's forest and contronyms where each correct response is a single word with two meanings that kind of contradict each other. And I like the contronyms. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of always linguistically fun. This ended up being a triple stumper, but I think my favorite was the $800 level. Something you didn't notice. Or watchful supervision of a project. That is oversight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I never thought about, like, the fixed and fixed thing before. Like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, something is fixed, you know, it's repaired or it's fixed. Like, it's not working anymore. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was kind of amused by Cyber Monday because that was, like, the name. I believe that was the name of, like, one of the categories in, my, in one of my games. Hmm. And I was like, man, they the writers sure do love Cyber Monday. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've we've mostly retired the uh, the cyber prefix, right? Um, for most purposes, um, right? But somehow somehow Cyber Monday has stuck around. Yeah, like I, nobody really even calls it that anymore. Hardly. I mean, I thought we had replaced Cyber Monday with like Prime Day. <laughs> yes because all holidays are they they will become corporate entities yeah right yeah um i'll tell you all i almost did a deep dive on george orwell because i was so thrilled that he was the answer mm-hmm. but yeah. i was like you know people already know about george well some people do yeah that's yeah. true <laughs> um it, that that's not me being snide about it being a triple stumper. That was I realized that sounded like like I was it's a little shade just throwing shade at the contestants. Yeah. That is not what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. So uh, totally to move on and not dwell on that, the Daily Double shows up in the holidays and observances category at the six hundred dollar level. Jack finds it. It's pick number twenty three. Uh, he's at thirty six hundred. Kevin is at 1800 and Elaine is at 1800 and Jack bets it all. I like that like that gumption. Yeah. And he gets the clue April 22nd was chosen for this observance because it fell between spring break and final exams. And he guesses what is spring break, which is 
in the clue. But the correct response is Earth Day. Ooh. Earth Day. So he drops down to zero, but plenty of game left. But like where I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, Earth Day is not celebrated on April 22nd. They move it elsewhere in the year because April 22nd usually falls during their citywide festival, which is called hmm. like Fiesta San Antonio. Hmm. <laughs> so we have it another time. <laughs> huh. That That's curious. Yeah. That's weird, huh? That's Texas for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, I don't, I don't want to go too far down that road. <laughs> at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Kevin is at 2,200, Elaine is at 2,400, and Jack is at 800. And they get the double Jeopardy categories, Pick Puri, Scientists, Sweden Lows and Highs, African American <laughs> Writers, 80s and 90s Hit Parade, and Making a 4A. There will be four, four A's in each correct response. Again, another one where it's like, how many words have four A's? <laughs> Which, if you listened, you would have heard me say it. Oh my god, are you kidding me right now? Four A's? <laughs> <laughs> Although those, I, I thought those were uh, pretty gettable. Yeah, mm-hmm. they were. They were. They were fun questions. I'll, I'll give them that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get baccalaureate, so my apologies to everybody I went to school with because mm-hmm. where I went to school, we had a baccalaureate ceremony every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My bad. I had no idea that amalgamate meant to mix into a compound with mercury. Yeah, it's like that's from that old-timey uh, apothecary day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, amalgam is, comes from the old name for mercury. Yeah. Yeah, I had heard it in the context of, like, amalgamated bank, and so I, I had sort of just uh, uh, inferred that it meant something about, like, unified, maybe, or, like, um, yeah, like, like, like as- merged. Hmm. Like as Mercury has gone out, gotten out of favor, it really started being more like a just a mixture of stuff, like amalgamated steel or what have you. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that was a that was an interesting thing for me to learn. Dilly double number two comes up in the scientists category at the eight hundred dollar level as the second pick. Um, Jack finds this one and wagers two thousand, um, uh, the maximum possible because he has twelve hundred at that point. Uh, to Kevin's 2,200 and Elaine's 2,400. And he gets the clue. Galileo mistakenly concluded that these were caused by the orbit of the Earth and not the proximity of the moon and sun. And he correctly responds, what are the tides? Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd realized quite how rough that single Jeopardy round was. Mm-hmm. It really so, was. Yeah. yeah. It was a yeah. tough one. But he picks up $2,000 there. Yep. And then pick number, uh, pick number eight is the third daily double. And Jack finds this one too. He is at 4000 and he wagers 2000 behind Kevin's 7400 and Elaine's 2400. And uh it's in the making a 4A category at the $1200 level. He gets the clue this royal title is from Sanskrit words meaning great king. And uh he guesses what is grand puba? Which also doesn't have four A's, but no. uh, they were looking for Maharaja. Jack finds all three daily doubles, and they don't really work out for him. Yeah. And after that, he just flatlines for the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rough game here. 
although they did better in the double jeopardy round uh, than in single jeopardy. So, um, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Kevin has 18,600. Elaine's at 14,800. Jack is at 2000. And we get the final jeopardy category movie appearances. I blind guessed this one. Although I didn't tweet it. So it it doesn't count if you don't tweet it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was the rules. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The clue is not an actor. This man who died in 2018 appeared briefly in some 40 mainly action films with a combined 30 billion worldwide gross. Jack wagered everything but a dollar and did not come up with anything. So he drops down to a buck. Elaine wagered 14,000, probably too large of a wager for this scenario, but she um, gets the response correct. Who is Stan Lee? Um, Kevin wagers 11,001. That's a cover bet. Also responds, who is Stan Lee? When I saw the category, I figured, like, it says movie appearances. And so I figured it had to, like, if it was an actor or an actress, they would be, th- that would be referenced movie in the category. Yeah, movie roles. Right, yeah. yeah. You know, stars of the screen or like, I don't know what. But yeah, so I figured that it was somebody who was not an actor who like made cameos um, and Stan Lee came to mind immediately as did Alfred Hitchcock, but I, I, I guessed Stan Lee. So I'm pleased with myself hmm. and with our contestants. So Kevin's our winner and we'll be back on Thursday. That's right. And, and with this win, he is at the five win threshold and apparently Jeopardy is, is not playing cat and mouse about it anymore. They have very clearly declared that he will be in the next tournament of champions. So Usually five games is kind of the the, the threshold anyway, mm-hmm. um, unless you have a weird stretch of nobody hitting five games like we had in season thirty five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I remember even when I like when I won my fifth game, the stage manager said, you know, like that means you have a pretty good chance of making it to the tournament rather than being like you're in, you know. Yeah. So like I don't know. But now they like their social media has, has like said, "We'll see you in the next tournament of champions." So, yeah, I, I guess it's a guarantee. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm wondering, of course, like when is the next tournament going to be? But I guess we'll find out. Yeah, yeah, they usually do it every other year. So I'm going to guess 2021. Yeah. Prob- probably about a year from now, we would see it if they're going to stick to kind of the same schedule. But it it moves around if we go back through the through the archives it moves around sometimes it's two and a half years or whatever so yeah who knows anyway thursday we get the contestants Kristen husek an attorney from san francisco california daniel lee an orthopedic surgeon from south pasadena california and kevin walsh a story analyst originally from williamstown new jersey whose five days winnings is up to hundred eleven thousand three hundred one dollars And we get the Jeopardy round categories Word Puzzles, Micronations, On the Billboard Charts in 2020, Animals, A Visit to the Tailor, and A Pair of Pence. (laughs) Again. (laughs) These puns. (laughs) Um. Was anybody disappointed that Sealand did not make the Micronations category? Because I was. Oh, I shoot, it did. Never mind. I don't know what that is. Never mind. It is. It actually did make it. I don't know why. But what is it, I though? Because I wasn't familiar. 
Sealand is like this little. It's like not recognized by I don't think really officially by like anybody, but the principality of Sealand that it's like built on um, like some old like abandoned uh, platforms mm-hmm. in uh, it's uh, international waters. It's, it was established in 1967 by this family. They have royal titles and they have their own constitution. They have their own uh, they have their own flag and like. The, the question that's actually on the on the category is that for a, a, a fee, you can become a lord or lady of the Principality of Sealand. <laughs> it's pretty great. Yeah, it's like 30 pounds. So, you know, starts nice. at 30 pounds. Mm-hmm. Very reasonable. Nice. I'll need to look into that. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I keep thinking I'm going to do it one of these days, but, you know. I'm probably, I should probably hold out for buying that. You know, you, you can also do a similar thing in... Uh, Scotland, where you can buy, hmm. buy like this little teeny weeny piece of land. Oh, I think I've seen that. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, the Scotland titles. You own land in Scotland. You can uh, <laughs> you you buy like this easy weensy little chunk of land and be like the laird or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the thousand dollar level of on the Billboard charts in 2020. Uh, the writers just wanted to hear Alex read this. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, they, they made him read some Megan Stallion lyrics. Classy, bougie, ratchet, and sassy, moody, nasty, says this number one hit by Megan the Stallion. Um, right. Uh, <laughs> I just read how J Archive like, uh, documented what happened. Daniel rang in and said, What is I'm a savage? Alex glares at him. <laughs> <laughs> like, at least, you know, like Alex is lucky that they didn't ask him about WAP, right? I mean, that's right. uh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I want to hear him read those lyrics. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Daily Double number one it comes up in a pair of pence at the thousand dollar level. It's the twentieth pick. Kevin finds it and wagers one thousand of his twenty eight hundred. Daniel's at two hundred at this point. Kristen is at three thousand, and Kevin gets the clue. Brought to England from Holland, this liquor was sold in shops promising drunk for a penny, dead drunk for twopence. Tuppence? Tuppence. 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 Dead drunk for tuppence. Kevin says, oh boy, uh, what is Amstel? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't think you can get dead drunk on Amstel for tuppence. Uh, Let's try. uh, Back in the day, it was stronger back then. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think he's he's trying to come up with an alcoholic beverage that he associates with Holland. Holland, Um, yeah. uh, The correct response here is gin. So he drops it. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Kevin's at 4,400. Uh, Kristen's in second place at 4,200. Daniel's at 2,400. And we get the double Jeopardy categories Crime and Punishment, American Playwrights, Very Special, From A to Y, World History, and Where Have I Seen Those Stairs? <laughs> They had a bit of a hard time with the crime and punishment category. They got the four hundred and eight hundred dollar clue, but then twelve, sixteen, and and two thousand were triple stumpers, and uh, Kevin negged on both the twelve and the six or twelve and and two thousand. Mm-hmm. 
The $1,200 clue was the wooden gun seen here. They showed a picture was auctioned for $19,000 in 2009, as it's said to be the one John Dillinger used in this daring effort. Kevin guessed what's a bank robbery. Not bad, because it is kind of what he was known for. Uh, but it was his uh, escape <laughs> from jail. And then the $2,000 clue, Charles was the real first name of this Depression-era bank robber whose nickname may have come from his fine clothing. Kevin guessed who is Dapper Dan. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Dapper Dan man. <laughs> <laughs> Which I find very funny. I It will be less funny if I later find out that there was actually a criminal named Dapper Dan. Uh, but they were looking for Pretty Boy Floyd. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daily Double number two shows up in the world history category. I love this category. It was very good to me. Mm, yeah. Kristen finds it. She is in the lead at 13,000. Over Daniel's 8,400 and Kevin's 1,200. Kevin has uh, had a rough go of it. She wagers 2,000 and she gets the clue. This religion that has Hindu and Islamic influences arose in the Punjab in the early 16th century. Uh, And she guesses what is Brahmanism, uh, but it is Sikhism. Yep. Most everything I know about Sikhism is... uh in the clue there. Well, no, I know, I know a few things about like contemporary practice, um, but not a whole lot about the history, but I, I recognized it from Hindu and Islamic influences and 16th century. Mm-hmm. And we English speakers tend to pronounce it Sikh. I think because we're shying away from, we don't want it to sound like the word, the English word sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe in like in its own language, sick is, uh, is the correct pronunciation. Sikhism. Um, mm. um which I know, but I still often say Sikhism just because I think English speakers tend to pronounce it that way. And so there's the question of whether you want to be authentic to the correct pronunciation or whether you want to be understood. Yeah. It's tricky. Daily Double number three comes up in American Playwrights at the $800 level uh, as the 28th pick, which turns out to be the final pick. Uh, Daniel finds this one and wagers... 4,000 of his 8,000. Kevin's at 2,000 at this point, and Kristen is at 11,400. And he gets the clue. He's the playwright seen here with his famous second wife. Uh, The famous second wife is obviously Marilyn Monroe, um, and he correctly responds, who is Arthur Miller. Mm -hmm. So he takes the lead on the very last clue. Yeah. So uh, going into Final Jeopardy. Daniel is in the lead at 12,000, Kristen is right behind at 11,400, and Kevin is down at 2,000. He just had a, a rough couple of boards, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they get the Final Jeopardy category, Psychological Terms. And the clue is Physician Cannonball Mike Friedman defined this behavioral type and admitted the term applied to himself. Kevin bet nothing. And he wrote what is uh, obsessive-compulsive, which was incorrect. Kristen wagered 8700 and wrote what is risk-taker, which is also incorrect. And Daniel wagered 10801 a cover bet. And we, uh, guessed what is borderline purse... We're going for borderline personality. Uh, but it is type A that they were going for, and... I had no pointer 
for me. Mm-hmm. Like I thought it was, I also thought it was risk taker too. I don't know if I was misled by the fact the guy's name was Cannonball Mike or what. Yeah, yeah. But like, I, I honestly like did not think that Type A personality was like an actual psychological term. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just some people said about themselves. It, yeah, it used to be Type A and Type B used like used to be more like commonly considered. That seemed that I don't know that that seemed like an extremely difficult question to me. Yeah, there was yeah. just not much to go on there. Yeah. Um, and I think it it's very logical to hear Cannonball Mike and assume this is some kind of you know daredevil, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I, I would say not a great clue. You really have to like either get a lucky guess or, or know- have a pretty deep knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It's like a you have you have to know what or you don't kind of thing. Yeah, which, which, as we've talked about, for Final Jeopardy is not usually the case. Usually you can kind of suss it out or you can, Mm -hmm. you can work your way toward an answer. And on this one, I just, yeah, I felt like it was just blind guessing any possible psychological term. But it is what it is. And that means Kristen is the champion. Only $700 above Kevin. Kevin was not that far off (laughs) winning that time. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, right. But Kevin's uh, tournament spot is secure, and uh, Kristen is our champion as we go on to Friday, where we have Angel Romani, an MBA student originally from San Francisco, California, Aaron Ballett, an executive assistant from Santa Barbara, California, and Kristen Husick, an attorney from San Francisco, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $2,700. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, City Nicknames, Two-letter words, around the house, actors and their roles, American history, and LV, the letters L and V. The Jeopardy round went okay. They got most of them. There were a few triple stumpers. Anshal had a hard time getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a couple, of, a couple of bad guesses early on and, and went into the red. Yeah. Like, I've always thought it's really weird that, like, the Jack and Jill bathroom, like, I only learned that term, like, within a year or two ago, because I had never heard of it, and I saw it written somewhere, and I was like, what in the heck is a Jack and Jill bathroom? Hmm. Mm, yeah. Like, I don't even understand. <laughs> yeah. Situated between two bedrooms. I sort of, I, I associate, associate that more with, like, like a dorm room setup, yeah. I right? guess, yeah. you know? Yeah. Luckily, I didn't have a dorm room situation like that, but... Yeah. Other, I had fr- I had friends who did, and like when they'd visit, they'd be like, "Well, you got to make sure to lock the other door when you go in there." You know, lo- and lock more th- importantly, lo- unlock it after you're done. Eh. Oh yeah, eh. it's eh. very easy to like lock the uh, the person on the other side out of their bathroom mm-hmm. inadvertently, yeah, cool. indefinitely, <laughs> inadvertently, and then like you know leave and go to class. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we get the first daily double in the American history category. It is at the $600 level. Aaron uncovered it, and he wagered 1500 of his 3000 Kristen was in the lead at 4000 and Anshal was at 800 And he gets the clue, the oldest continuously settled city in America. It was named for the Bishop of Hippo. And he takes a really long time, and as time expires, he guesses what is St. Augustine. Which is correct. Mm-hmm. Although, if it were named for the Bishop of Hippo, we would say St. Augustine, wouldn't we? We would. Yeah. We would. 
Yeah, I, I like seeing him get it in just in time. And I'm told that they uh, they will check the tape to make sure that you've gotten, you know, the majority of your response out before the before the tone right. ends, yeah. I guess. Yeah, um, that you've yeah, you've started your response or you've gotten enough out or whatever the rule is. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was fun. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Aaron is in a slight lead at fifty three hundred. Kristen is at fifty two hundred and Anshal is at eighteen hundred. We get the Double Jeopardy categories Feel the Power, Poets and Poetry, Orders of Magnitude, The English Monarch When, I'm Just the Go Between, and so those go in quotation marks, those responses will have go between two other words. Mm -hmm. And then LV is the last category, but it is E-L-V-I. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I'm so sad that we didn't get to all of the poets and poetry clues. <laughs> I I had a hard time with these, actually. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel your pain. I was being sarcastic. <laughs> I don't know if you were. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Listeners of the podcast probably also know Kyle has not made any kind of secret how he feels about poetry. Yeah. I, I want to be clear about about poetry trivia. I have I have okay. no disdain for poetry itself. I recognize it as an art form that is important and mm -hmm. and artistic, and that's great. I just it is not it is my my trivia Achilles heel. Mm. We had an almost but not quite miss in the I'm just the go between category at the eight hundred dollar level. The clue there was Star Trek: The Next Generation degendered the famed opening, changing man. <laughs> to one in this line and Aaron rang in and said where no one has gone before that is the correct ending of the phrase but he needed a go in the middle um, so he needed to boldly go where no man or no one has gone before which is interesting now that I'm looking at it on, on the screen there is a go in the word in gone. In the word gone. Yeah. And it I think they were trying a little too hard on that that clue. Yeah. The right. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot to produce for 800 bucks. Yeah. Mhm. Mm they had a hard time with the uh they had a hard time with this board. This double yeah, jeopardy round they, was dirty. Yeah, yeah, the don't don't go there. I think that was kind of a a really like weird way to to uh describe don't go there. Please stop talking in the present vein. I do not wish to think about that. Yeah, how are you? I don't know how you were supposed to get to don't go there. No, like from uh, that. Yeah. It, it seemed really vague. Like, uh, what was that clue from the 1984 episode? That was uh, that was like it could be literally anything as long as it's not this. Oh right, this was not technically an apple in the Bible. It's like, well, really, right. anything was technically not an apple right. except for apples. Yeah. 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 At the $1,600 level, the town where you grew up won't be the way you remember it, as we learned from this 1940 novel title. I feel like they didn't give a... Well, you, they didn't give as much as I maybe would have expected. Uh, Kristen guessed, guessed, what is You Can Never Go Back? Uh, they were looking for You Can't Go Home Again. Uh, that's a that's a Thomas Wolfe novel. Mm -hmm. That is Look Homeward Angel, Thomas Wolfe, not Bonfire of the Vanities, Tom Wolfe. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> not, all, not all of us are card-carrying members of the Thomas Wolfe <laughs> Friends Society or whatever. All right. 
I, I would have expected them to mention Thomas Wolfe in the clue. Um, yeah. Uh, we find Daily Double number two as the 21st pick at the $1,600 level of orders of magnitude, which has turned out to be about large purchases. Angel finds it and wagers 1400 of her 3400 At this point, Kristen is at 10000 and Aaron is at 5300 And Angel gets the clue. Emerging from famine, this country opened up to the U.S. in 1972. Its first deal was to buy 13 American fertilizer factories. And she guesses what is Ireland? I think working off of the word famine. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, that is incorrect. Um, The correct response here is China. Yeah. Yeah, a little late for the Irish famine. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she follows it up with pick number 22, Daily Double number 3, over in the English Monarch When category. So the scores are the same, except she is 1,400 lower than she was before. She wagers 1,000 and gets the clue, who was the English Monarch When Napoleon became Emperor of France. And she quickly fired off who is Victoria, but that is uh, a bit too early. For Victoria, it is... The Mad King George III. I know I talked about this when I did the English, uh, like the British Royal House deep dive. The way that the monarchy went from George III to Victoria is bonkers. Hmm. Whole bunches of like, this person had to not have any sons, and this person had to die early, and this person had to not have any sons to eventually get to Victoria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I vaguely remember that. I, I need to spend more time with that with that deep dive. I want to really get those uh, get those monarchs sorted out. It's important for trivia, as we mm-hmm. as we saw yeah. in this game. Mm-hmm. Angel took a guess at the sixteen hundred dollar level as the very last clue of the round. Uh, it was Magellan's fleet began its circumnavigation voyage. She guessed who is Elizabeth. Uh, the correct response here is Henry the Eighth. I thought Elizabeth was kind of a savvy guess in that there are only so many sort of especially well-known monarchs and she remembered which ones had come up and which hadn't. I would have expected Queen Elizabeth I to be at the 1600 or 2000. And so I I see this as like trying to get within striking distance. Unfortunately, she she missed it. And it was the last clue of the round. Those last three were not revealed and that dropped her into the red. Yeah. Also, if you remember that, like, Sir Francis Drake was definitely associated with Queen Elizabeth I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then that probably may have uh, led her to guess that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So at the end of Double Jeopardy, um, Kristen is in the lead with 8,000. Aaron's at 5,300. Uh, Angela is at negative 200, so will not get to participate in Final Jeopardy, where the category is 20th Century American Music. And the clue is, the composer of this 1944 ballet piece said it concerned a pioneer celebration around a newly built farmhouse in the hills. Aaron wagered 5,000 but did not manage to come up with anything. Uh, What is blank? Kristen wagered 2,700, which is a cover bet and a little bit, and guessed... Alex Trebek pronounced it Rodeo. Is that the correct pronunciation? If you're, if we're in Copeland, if we're, Kyle, t- it- if if we're talking about the Copeland Ballet, it is Rodeo. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, rodeo is not correct, although she had figured out it was Copeland. Um, the correct response here is Appalachian Spring. 
Appalachian Spring. Like I got as far as uh, Aaron Copeland, and then I'll, I was like, "Is it?" I said, "It's Appalachian something." I thought it was Appalachian Waltz for some strange mm. reason, and I was like, "That doesn't sound right. It's a ballet, not a waltz." Yeah, mm. I had a uh, in my second game against Sean and uh, Lauren. Sean got in before me on a clue, and then he got the daily double following that, and. It was not the same clue, but it was similar. The correct response was Appalachian Spring. And I was, like, trying very hard not to not to make myself visibly shake. Because Appalachian Spring is one of my all-time favorite pieces. Mm-hmm. It's the first, first piece of music that ever gave me chills. It made me want to learn how to write music. It's like, I love this piece. I love this piece. And now twice I have seen it on Jeopardy and been like, ugh. I want to show off that I know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Rodeo's not a bad guess if you're like, well, it's American ballet and, you know, a pioneer, like, probably going to be Copeland. And what Copeland ballets do I know? So Yeah, I did I did guess Appalachian Spring and, and narrowed it down uh, from Rodeo or Appalachian Spring based on the, the hills yeah. in the clue. I shouted out at home, what is Appalachian Spring? And my daughter turns to me and goes, Mama. It's Appalachian Trail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't you just love it how toddlers know everything when you're wrong? Yeah. <laughs> um, I was proud of her for remembering that the Appalachian Trail is a thing, but... <laughs> yeah, that's good. I was like, how'd you, I was like, how'd you remember that? That's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. Anyway. That's the week. Yep. <laughs> that's the week. That's the week. And this is the time that we... Uh, talk sternly about doing good things i'm gonna keep it short look into options to give money give time give support in some way to support social justice in your community and in our country we continue to uh, point you toward communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com but if you find another way to do that please do that please do that uh, if you've got extra, you know, funds and f- extra desire to do so, we do have a Patreon. You can check that out. But if you got to choose, choose something that actually helps the world. Uh, and vote. Mm-hmm. It's coming up. Get your yep. ballots in. Sooner rather than later. All right. Marianne. Yes. Take it away. Well, I was uh, I was so excited to see um, Gertrude Stein make it to the Jeopardy the Jeopardy board this week, and uh, I was a little disappointed that um, it was end up being a triple stumper. So I was thinking maybe you know let's all have a little refresher about Gertrude Stein. So my deep dive this week is about Gertrude Stein, her like lifetimes works. Let's all do right. it. Uh, <laughs> Super psyched. Yeah, <laughs> Gertrude Stein was born on February 3rd, 1874 in Allegheny City, which is now part of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to German-Jewish parents. She was the youngest of five children and grew up speaking German and English. Um, When she was three, her parents decided that they wanted uh, their family to have a taste of European culture and sophistication. So they moved to Vienna and then to Paris. And uh, Gertrude said later in life that that's how Paris got into her blood. They spent four years in Europe, and then the Steins moved back to California, where they settled in Oakland, which was, of course, a lot more rural back then. And uh, in later life, uh, Gertrude Stein said of Oakland, there is no there there, which is like one of the famous lines people associate with her. 
And people took it to mean that, you know, that was an insult to the city of Oakland. Although, you know, by all accounts, she seems to have been pretty happy there. So it seemed like more she was talking about how all the stuff that she knew when she lived there was no longer there. Her, her family had scattered. Mm. Her childhood home was gone. By the time she was 17, um, both of her parents had died. And uh, both Gertrude and her sister were sent to live with an uncle in Baltimore. Uh, and in Baltimore is where Gertrude got to know a little bit of the artistic life. She uh, re- uh, met some very famous uh, figures in the art collecting, art history world. Uh, the Cone sisters, Clarabelle and Etta Cone, they were uh, art collectors who amassed like this amazing collection. And they were frequent travelers to Europe. And uh, on Saturday nights, they used to host salons, you know, for you know people to come and talk and look at their art. And those salons ended up being the inspiration for the salons that Gertrude uh, and her partner, Alice B. Talkless, would later hold in, uh, in Paris when they lived there. When Gertrude was growing up, she was very close to her older brother, Leo. And uh, he went away to Harvard, and she really missed him. And so even though she had only finished, like, one year of high school, and uh, did not know Latin, which back then, to get into Harvard or Radcliffe, you had to know Latin. It's unclear in how she did it, but somehow, Gertrude managed to get herself admitted to Radcliffe. And uh, I read a 1959 Harvard Crimson article that described uh, Gertrude as the most brilliant woman student, which is what one of her professors said about her. A member of the college administration is quoted in that article as saying, she didn't like us and we didn't care for her. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she was always a bit of a non-traditional person. And that's, you know, one of the things I thought was great about her when I was, you know, when I was younger, when I was learning about her for the first time. Um, while at Radcliffe, Gertrude studied psychology and she published a paper with a fellow student about the theory of automatic writing, which is a popular theory back then, the idea that someone could be like distracted or doing something else and, just write something else, something while they weren't paying attention. And this is, a, that was a, you know, a popular theory back then. And uh, people talk about that as being an inspiration or influential for Gertrude's later writing style. Although she said later that she knew like that basically there was no such thing. You really couldn't hmm. write without your conscious mind being at least a little bit, you know, aware of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So Gertrude graduated from Radcliffe in 1898, and then at the urging of one of her professors, she applied for and attended uh, John Hopkins Medical School. And so she was, you know, studying to be a doctor, but she was really discouraged and depressed during this period because um, there were not a lot of women studying medicine, and she really had a lot of clashes with the male students and the faculty because, of course, she felt like she deserved to be there, and they, you know, but she didn't like act or dress like, you know, what they thought women like should act or dress like. And so she did not finish her course of study. Although during this time, she did give a controversial lecture to a women's group in Baltimore, criticizing the idea of women's economic dependence on men. Mm-hmm. So I guess that probably didn't go over too great. <laughs> <laughs> and while she was at Johns Hopkins, Gertrude was involved in an unhappy love triangle with two other women, and then she ended up like writing a novel based on this experience that was later published as QED. Um, in 1902, Gertrude's brother Leo moved to London and then to Paris in 1903. And Gertrude uh, just packed up and went with him. And uh, Gertrude and Leo lived together in Paris until 
1914, and they started building a world-class art collection, including the works by artists who maybe weren't quite as famous then, but got real famous real soon after that, like Cezanne, Gauguin, Picasso, Renoir. Like they just started to collect art. Hmm. And uh, their reputation as art collectors really grew because Leo had a lot of connections in the art world and he was friends with a lot of dealers and critics, many of whom visited them on Saturday evening at the salons they would hold, like the ones they had seen in Baltimore. And during this, during these times, Gertrude wrote some of her most famous works, including her novel Three, Three Lives, um, Tender Buttons, which is referenced in the Jeopardy category, which is a book of prose poems, and a lengthy uh, book called The Making of Americans. In 1907, Gertrude met the love of her life, Alice Babette Toklas. And it was like the day after Alice had come to Paris with a friend. And they fell in love like right away. And then they had to figure out how to get Alice away from like the living situation where she was like staying with this friend of hers. And they kind of had to like uh, finagle it. And eventually Alice moved in with Gertrude and Leo in 1910. And they stayed together until Gertrude died in 1946. Even though he was her brother, like Leo had always discouraged Gertrude from writing. He called her writing an abomination. <sighs> but Alice was always supportive. She really made it possible for Gertrude to continue writing. She kept their household. She uh, would even like communicate with publishers and arrange for Gertrude's books to get published, or her, her books and her, uh, her shorter pieces. So Tender Buttons was published in 1912, and that was what established Gertrude's style um, sort of what this was called like an immersive style. Like she did for language what the emerging Cubist movement was doing for art, which is, you know, why she's, in, you know, one of the reasons she's in, included in the Cubist category because uh, she used language in that way almost in, to create the same effect where you see many facets of a thing at one time. And these kind of verbal collages that she wrote produce one of the other lines that she's best known for, rose is a rose is a rose, and that's from the poem called Sacred Emily. Now, in 1914, you know, Leo decided to move out. He moved to Italy and divided the art collection with Gertrude. And he was not a big Picasso fan because he didn't like Cubism. So he left Gertrude all of the Picasso's paintings and drawings that she had, except for one that he had done of Leo. So Gertrude and Alice took some extended trips, you know, to Europe. To, you know, in Europe, too, they went to Spain. They, they went to a few other places and finally came back to Paris in 1915, because they had felt inspired to join the war effort for World War One, And uh, Gertrude didn't know how to drive, but she decided to uh, buy a Ford truck, got one of her friends to teach her how to drive, and she and Alice uh, spent the war driving supplies to hospitals in France. Hmm. Um, Gertrude, you know, when she wanted to do something, she figured out how to do it. She called her truck Auntie after her Aunt Pauline, who Gertrude described as, behaving admirably in emergencies and behaving fairly well most of the time <laughs> if she was properly flattered. <laughs> and I was like, wow, my car is the same way. <laughs> <laughs> During the 20s, um, Gertrude and Alice sort of, you know, presided over these salons where artists and writers gathered. Many of them were American expatriates. And uh, as Gertrude saw it, they were a lost generation because they were too young to have fought in World War One. And so they didn't have anywhere to like direct their political and social energies. And that's we kind of where that's where that she's the one who coined that term lost generation for mm -hmm. you know Hemingway, Fitzgerald, and all those other fellas. 
Ernest Hemingway, of course, was a regular attendee at these salons. Although um, it did make Alice a little jealous how much time he spent with Gertrude. And it's alleged, I mean, obviously Hemingway never admitted to this, that she helped him uh, rewrite and revise A Farewell to Arms. Hmm. And um, Hemingway credited Stein with, with creating the Lost Generation phrase. That's one of the epigraphs for The Sun Also Rises. So they were clearly very important to one another at, at one point, although they did uh, break up. We'll touch on that later. Um, in 1926, Gertrude lectured at Oxford and Cambridge on her immersive theory of writing. And she re really stayed kind of experimental writer because she was mostly published by literary, little literary magazines and only a few people read her work. So she decided she wanted to be better known. And um, she took the advice of some friends like uh, Bennett Cerf, the publisher, and, and the critic Carl Van Vechten, and decided to write a memoir, something a little more accessible. But um, in her usual kind of contradictory fashion, she decided to write it um, from Alice's point of view. So that's her, that ended up being her most famous book, The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which is like Gertrude's memoir, even though it's told as though Alice is mm. telling it. In 1933, that was published. And that made her like instantly like famous and well-known. And Alice and Gertrude went on an extended lecture tour in America after it was published. But first they had to like make sure that like the food would, would be acceptable because Gertrude was like very picky about meals so they asked the hotels they were going to stay at to like send them menus of the kind of food they mm -hmm. served so they could decide if that was okay for them to travel there. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, although it was like her best received and most famous book, Gertrude felt like she kind of sold out a little bit by writing it. Like she might have compromised her vision by making a book that was like so easily accessible and such a good seller. Hmm. Gertrude uh, believed in a strict writing schedule. A strict, a strict schedule with plenty of time for writing, although she didn't like to schedule her writing. She wanted to write like when the mood struck her, but so she wanted to get all of her like business done before then. And of course, Alice made that possible by managing their household. So Gertrude would get up in the morning and write letters, read and play with her dog basket. <laughs> and then um, she would run errands after lunch and she never would make an appointment or see any visitors before 4 p.m. Um, Gertrude and Alice like loved their dogs. They're white standard poodles. They had the first one named Basket, and then when Basket died in 1937, they bought another uh, dog of the uh, same color, same breed, and named it Basket too. <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah, you know, why not, right? Like the most uh, the most problematic part of Gertrude's legacy is her activities during World War II, where she was friends with a, a guy in the Vichy government and. Although, like, her friends and family, like, begged her to return to America, she refused because she said she wanted to stay in France because she was comfortable there and she, and she liked the food there, so she wasn't leaving. So Alice and Gertrude, like, moved to a rural house they had stayed at, and that's where they, you know, uh, sat out the war. Um, you know, they were, they were Jews. They were lesbians. It was a really dangerous time and place for Jews. Her friendship with the... Vichy leader uh, Bernard Fayi gave her special privileges. They got extra rations. She got to drive her car around. And it helped her to save her property, including her art collection. And um, I could have done a whole other deep dive on, like, the phenomenon of modernist writers who embraced fascism because they thought it was, like, a way to get back to what they considered a superior America that was, like, a pre-industrial, like, more agrarian mm -hmm. society. So that's, like, a whole other thing that we could – I could spend, like, a long time on. Yeah. But – 
uh, you know, during the war, Gertrude kind of changed her mind a little bit about that. So, and when she and she was writing her like another memoir called uh, "Wars I Have Seen," she talked about how, you know, she had kind of, you know, made this deal, but like she understood, but she wanted to be free, and everybody wants to be free, and it kind of seemed like she had like regretted what she had done, but um, uh, they made it through. And after the war, Gertrude like hosted a lot of uh, young American soldiers who were, you know, in the area and made friends with them. And she uh, wrote about them and kind of told some of their stories in her book, Bruzy and Willie, which was published in 1946. Wars I Have Seen was like smuggled out of France during the war. And it uh, was eventually published in 1945. Um, I think it was when the English version came out. It was uh, it was written originally in French. Mm-hmm. Um, Gertrude died on July 27, 1946, after an operation for stomach cancer at the American Hospital in Paris. She went out with another famous quote. You know, that was just her thing. Before she was going to surgery, she asked Alice, what is the answer? And Alice wasn't sure she was talking to her. So she was just like sleep talking in her sleep. And then Gertrude said, in that case, what is the question? Hmm. And <laughs> although Alice gave a little different version later on, like it's clear that those are the last words she ever spoke. She never came out of anesthesia after the surgery. Hmm. And uh, Gertrude left her whole estate to Alice, but because their relationship didn't really have any legal basis, Gertrude's family like swept in and took control of all her assets, including their amazing art collection, which had, you know, so many great things in it by that time. And so Alice was absolutely left destitute. Mm. Alice wrote three books after Gertrude died and she had to live basically with like handouts from friends until she died in 1967. But she and Gertrude are buried side by side at Père Lachaise cemetery in Paris. Now, in 1992, I thought this was interesting. I had not heard about this. A life-size statue of Gertrude Stein was 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 uh, put up in Bryant Park in Manhattan, hmm. and it's based on a 1923 model like that was created by sculptor Joe Davidson. So, I thought that's kind of. I don't know if she had any ties to Manhattan, but I thought that was kind of cool that there's a, a big statue of her, like a life-size statue there. Yeah, that's that's, that's cool. neat. So that's uh something about the life and times of Gertrude Stein. Nice. Wow. Awesome. That was very helpful. Thank you. I hope that's in case it's on Learn League or something. Like we're going to be ready, right? Yeah. So, um, so I have a quiz for you guys. Yay! All right, let's do quiz. it. All right. Question one: While at Radcliffe, Gertrude studied with a famous philosopher who is best known today for his work on the theory of the self, as well as on free will and pragmatism. Who was this philosopher? whose name is immortalized in a series of lectures still offered at Harvard. I've got my answer. Oh, of course. Because <laughs> I, I believe that 50% of the hosts of this show went to Harvard. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, I... Pragmatism. I don't know. I have a guess. You, you go first, Emily. It's William James. <laughs> Yeah, Correct. That's not who I was going to say. So, all right. <laughs> Come on, Kyle. I did a whole deep dive on him. <laughs> I know you did, but that was a while ago. And so, I guess that was a little bit of softball for Emily. Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Um, Gertrude you... once wrote James a note in an exam. Dear Professor James, I'm sorry, but really, I don't feel a bit like an examination paper on philosophy today. <laughs> now, uh, William James wrote her back and said, Dear Miss Stein, I understand perfectly how you feel. I often feel exactly that way myself. And so Gertrude got the highest grade in the class on that exam, maybe for her honesty. <laughs> However, 
I cannot recommend that method to all of you students out there. Do not do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bad idea. Do not do that. Question two. Gertrude's most famous opera libretto that she wrote is four saints in three acts, which unconventionally had its European saints portrayed by an all-black cast. The main characters are St. Teresa of Avila, portrayed by two singers, and this Spanish Basque mercenary turned saint who founded the Jesuit order and is the namesake of the famous university. Okay, I, I know this one. I have my guess, although there are some saints I mix up here. You go ahead, Kyle. Uh, I think that's St. Ignatius. That's what I had too, St. Ignatius. I think of Loyola. Loyola. That's it. Correct. Very good. Nice. Question three. Gertrude was friends for many years with Ernest Hemingway, even becoming the godmother of one of his children. However, the relationship later soured over Hemingway's insults to a mutual friend. Who was this friend, a novelist and short story writer whose most famous work is Winesburg, Ohio? Remember who wrote Winesburg, Ohio? I know I've heard the title of that work before. I do not know. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. Okay. Um, It is uh, Sherwood Anderson. Oh. I was not going to go there. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, there was like some serious beef there, and Ernest Hemingway made fun of Anderson's book, Dark Laughter, in his novella, The Torrents of Spring. Hmm. A little old fashioned, hmm. little old fashioned beef there. Hmm. Nice. Nice. Question four. Although she wrote many works that are today considered to be feminist and queer classics, Gertrude never called herself a feminist. And despite her outspoken criticism of women's enforced economic dependence, she also refused to do anything political to advance the rights of women. However, she did write the libretto for an opera called The Mother of Us All about what famous social reformer and co-founder of the National American Woman Suffrage Association. Hmm. I feel like it's a toss-up. Yeah, I'm having that same instinct. Um, all right, I, I, I've picked mine. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with... Uh, yeah, okay. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go with Susan B. Anthony. I was going to say Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Yeah, that's Kyle. You are correct. Oh, was Susan right, B. Yes. Anthony. Oh man, my, I even <laughs> wanted to go Stanton. I was like, ah, oh, no, Susan B. Anthony's too. That wouldn't be it. It's probably Stanton. But I'll go with the oh. obvious one. Okay. Yes. Guess what? Today I am the dreaded opera category. <laughs> <laughs> I need to look at these. I did not know that she wrote librettos. I need to look at these. Yeah. Find so these you- operas. Yeah, they're not really well known today. They're not considered among her best work, but I think they're still worth, uh, you know, looking into. Obviously, sure. And um, yeah, Gertrude, unfortunately, you know, she had, you know, she was an interesting person. She's a, a person with a lot of contradictions. Mm-hmm. She really uh, considered that she she had said that she was considered herself a genius, but she thought that only men were geniuses. So interesting. She kind of really tried to shy away from uh, getting uh, involved politically as a woman or talking about women's rights at all. Mm. Huh. Question five. Gertrude's partner, Alice B. Toklas, was not only a writer, but also an excellent cook. After Gertrude's death, Alice collected some recipes and reminiscences and published them in 1954 as the Alice B. Toklas Cookbook. The cookbook quickly became infamous in Britain 
for including a recipe for what potent comestible? Comestible. I I have no idea. Uh, but I have a guess, I suppose. Potent. I'm still trying to figure myself out here. <laughs> um, infamous in Britain. Yeah, I, that's what I like. Why would it be infamous in Britain? I yeah, mm-hmm. I, I have a guess, but I I don't know what it has to do with Britain. <laughs> All right, Emily, you got a guess. Uh... <laughs> I can't even remember the name of it, but I'm going to go with, like, that weird French songbird thing. If it's right, then it's oh, probably close yeah. enough. But. I, I know what you're talking about. I can't think of it. It starts with an O, but I don't yeah, remember what, that what it's one. called. Wazo something. Um, oh, yeah, yeah that's Something it. like that. Uh, no, but that's not it. That was a good guess, yeah. though. Kyle, what's your guess? Uh, rum cake or rum balls. <laughs> I have no that's, idea. You know, it's, it's kind of close. You know, it's a recipe for hashish fudge or marijuana fudge. Oh, oh, oh my. That's right. It's an early <laughs> recipe for edibles. edibles. Yeah. Alice cautions the reader that two pieces of this fudge are, quote, quite sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> the recipe was a contribution from one of Gertrude and Alice's friends, the artist Brian Geisen. Oh. Cool. And uh, and now I have a final question, uh, question number six. Okay. Alice's famous recipe was missing from the first American printing of the book, but was replaced in an edition published in 1960. The recipe later makes an appearance of sorts in the 1968 film I Love You, Alice B. Talkless, in which a straight-laced lawyer is tempted away from his square life by a young hippie and her pot brownies. What English actor, best known for a comedy franchise, named for a famous feline, played oh. lawyer Harold Fine in this film? Okay. Oh, jeez. Okay. Hmm. I'm not sure I'm going to get anything. Do you want time? Mm, I don't think time's going to help. Do you, have, do you have a response, Kyle? I do. All right. I, I'm going to guess Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm guessing the famous feline is the Pink Panther, so I'm oh. going to go with P- Peter Sellers. Oh, That's correct, Kyle. Good job. Nice job, Kyle. <laughs> Yay. Those were good questions. Yeah, those were great questions. Thank you. I've never written, like, trivia quizzes before, so I was like, is it too hard? Is it too easy? I don't know. No, I think, <laughs> I think it was just right. Yeah. Yay. Nice. Thank you. I'm honored to have been on the podcast. It was fun to do a deep dive to talk to people about Gertrude Stein, one of my favorite writers. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're glad to have you. Yeah, so thank you so much uh, for joining us, Marianne, and for your excellent deep dive and quiz. And thank you, Kyle, for potting with me, as of always. Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. And thank you, listeners, um, for listening. So lovely to uh, to share this time with you. Um, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It would help us if you could leave a review and or a rating as well. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you're not interested in that, you can still um, let your friends know about our podcast. That's right. They can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Uh, our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Marianne Bohr. I'm honored to have been a guest on today's podcast. Please be sure to come back next week to uh, catch next week's recaps with Emily and Kyle. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.